Before this man's arrival, Formula One was a weird sport in Spain. Yes, the Spanish Grand Prix had been around for decades at various different circuits across the country, and for the most part, they were well attended. But motorcycle racing was king. The Spanish people had a lot more invested in two wheels rather than four. But in 2001, when a fresh-faced 19-year-old Spaniard arrived, and despite his lack of horsepower, he impressed straight away. In the years since, he has got on to become a great of the sport, with great success, but perhaps not in terms of numbers. As we'll get into, he has a number of race wins and world championships to his name, but the success he has attained comes in the form of overwhelming levels of respect from both the fans and from his peers. And with his highly publicised adventure in America still fresh in our minds, what better time to discuss the driver who many, including me, considered to be the best driver of his era. I'm Rob Manafield, and welcome to F1 Everything, Episode 4, Fernando Alonso. Fernando Alonso Diaz, born July 29th, 1981, in northern Spain, in a place which I'm not even going to try and pronounce. His mother worked in a department store, and his father was a mechanic in an explosives factory. Sounds safe. His father, Jose Luis, was an amateur kart racer and wanted to pass on his passion to his children. Fernando, you see, also has an older sister. His father built a go-kart, which was originally intended for his older sister, but she showed no interest in racing. Fernando, on the other hand, did. The family weren't financially well off, which made his new hobby difficult. But Fernando was instantly successful from a young age, and this attracted sponsorships and the required funds. Fernando was actually racing drivers three to four years older than him, and this presented a whole new batch of challenges. And because his family couldn't afford the required equipment for him, such as wet tyres for example, he had to adapt. He has gone on to say that these early stages as a child helped mould him into the racing driver he is today. Fernando won four Spanish championships back to back in the junior category, category between 1993 and 1996 and the Junior World Cup in 96 as well. He won the Spanish and Italian Inter-A titles in 1997, and in 1998 won the Spanish Inter-A title again, as well as finishing second in the European Championship. Alonso was given his first test in a race car in October 1998, and his times matched those set by Marc Genet, who was already racing at that level. He was then signed to race in the 1999 Spanish Euro Mobistar by, Siri, uh, by Nissan Series and won his first race at only his second attempt. He took the championship by only one point by winning and setting the fastest lap at the last race of the season. This earned him a test for the Minardi Formula 1 team which saw him lap 1.5 seconds faster than the, any of the other drivers at the same test. For 2000, Alonso moved up to Formula 3000, where after a bit of a tricky season, where he didn't score a single point until the 7th round, he would go on to finish 4th in the standings. In time for the 2001 Formula 1 season, he had been signed by Minardi, and the rest is history. At the time, 
Fernando became the youngest driver in Formula 1 history at just 19 years and 218 days. Now, his first season in F1 had one major handicap, the car. It was slow, and it wasn't very reliable. But Alonso showed experience beyond his years by consistently outperforming the car, something that he would show later in his career, although under much different circumstances. Some of the more notable performances in 2001 came in qualifying, where he would outperform his teammate Tasso Marquez, and he would even outqualify the two Benetton drivers, Fisichella and Button. His best result of the season came in Germany with a 10th place, but considering the circumstances, that's pretty good going. Flavio Briatore, a name you'll hear a little bit later in this episode as well, was planning to replace Button with Alonso for 2002, but decided to sign him as the team's test driver. Back in these those days, being a test driver was massively important to a young driver's career, whilst today it's a bit of a death wish due to the ban on in-season testing. In 2002, Alonso completed a total of 1,642 laps of testing. In 2003, Briatore did finally replace Button with Fernando, and his F1 career immediately came alive. In 2003, Alonso was brilliant. Sure, he showed those initial signs of inexperience, but every driver goes through that. But Malaysia, round two of the season, was a huge coming out party for him. He became Formula One's youngest ever pole sitter and took his first ever podium in the searing heat of Spain. Then Brazil happened. After a crazy race which saw it won by Giancarlo Fisichella in the Jordan of all people, Alonso had an absolutely horrific shunt at over 180 miles an hour. Moments after Mark Webber, had suffered a nasty crash of his own, Alonso missed the yellow flags that had been waved to him, thinking they, the accident was behind him, and he slammed into a stationary tyre. This sent him careering off into the barriers, and to describe the crash as violent would be an understatement. Go on YouTube and have a watch if you haven't seen it. It's pretty awful. He actually resulted in having the race red flagged due to the crash, and the race was abandoned from there. He was okay, but highly shaken as you'd expect. A few races later in Spain, Fernando put on a show for the home crowd, who had come out in droves to see their new hero. He challenged Michael Schumacher all race long for the win, and his pace was electric. He didn't win that day, but he didn't have to wait much longer to achieve that. At the Hungarian Grand Prix, he qualified on pole position and dominated from the front. He even lapped the great Michael Schumacher. At the time, he became the youngest ever race winner in Formula 1, and he would go on to finish 6th in the driver's standings. 2004 was a bit more of a tricky year for him, a season in which he secured only 4 podiums, though the one in France did come after getting pole, and after a race in which he pushed Michael Schumacher close for the win. He would finish the season in 4th, but in a year which was completely and utterly dominated by Michael Schumacher and Ferrari, it was hard to expect much more. However, with a big shake-up in the regulations for 2005, things were about to change, and the rise of Fernando Alonso was about to begin. It was immediately clear that the Renault RS25 was a quick car. 
Fisichella, Fernando's teammate, won the first race of the season with ease in Australia, a race in which Alonso finished third after fighting his way through the field after a difficult qualifying due to wet weather. He would go on to secure pole position and the win in both Malaysia and Bahrain, and arrived into Imola for round four, looking like an early favourite for the championship. McLaren, however, had something to say, and Raikkonen finally showed his hand, securing his first pole position of the year. This was at a time where qualifying was split across two days, with qualifying one taking place on Saturday afternoon and qualifying two taking place on Sunday morning. The driver with the fastest aggregate time across the two, both sessions would take pole position. Bear in mind, they only got one lap apiece in each session to set a time. This regulation of two qualifying sessions was scrapped later in the year. But the San Marino Grand Prix in 2005 was pure magic. Why? Three words. Schumacher versus Alonso. After Kimi had retired early on with reliability problems, it looked like Alonso was on his way to an easy win. But no. After a difficult qualifying for Schumacher, which saw him qualify 14th, he fought his way through the field and from lap 50 onwards, after Michael had emerged from his final stop just behind the Renault driver after putting in one of his typical Michael Schumacher performances for the ages, in a Ferrari which was undoubtedly slower than the Renault, it was game on. For the next 13 laps, the two all-time greats did battle. Now here's the thing, no one overtook each other. It was a battle of pure grit and determination. Michael getting so, so close to Alonso. Would the youngster crack under the immense pressure? Most drivers would. They would crumble. But Alonso didn't. It was a true coming-of-age performance. If people doubted Alonso's ability, they couldn't any longer. He withstood constant pressure from the greatest of all time and took a famous win. This was also the battle which saw ITV F1 cut to an ad break with just three laps to go. James Allen's cries of agony as he pleaded with the viewers to stay with them as the footage cut away from the race and to an advert about yogurts or something. People have seen this race as being something of a passing of the torch moment between Michael and Fernando. I personally don't think so. That wouldn't come until the following year. But this was pure racing. No DRS bullshit just two drivers not giving an inch, and it was absolutely glorious. Alonso wouldn't score another win until the European Grand Prix at the Nürburgring, and that came thanks to a bit of good fortune. Raikkonen, by this point, was absolutely on fire, and was putting in epic performance after epic performance in his attempt to take the fight to Alonso for the championship. It was clear that it was he who would be Fernando's main challenger, not Michael Schumacher. So at the Nürburgring, Raikkonen was leading, but on incredibly warm tyres, specifically one of the front tyres. They were wrecked. What would McLaren do? Would they make Kimi stop for tyres in the closing stages, or take the risk and deny Alonso the win? They chose the latter, and it backfired in their face. In Kimi's case, it literally backfired in his face. As the tyre imploded at 190 miles an hour into Turn 1, and came very close to his helmet, being held onto the car only by the wheel tether. Alonso cruised home to victory. I was 
awkwardly sidestepped the 2005 US Grand Prix. That race deserves its own episode, but not for the right reasons at all. So we move on to France, a race in which Alonso secured his third pole of the year and his fifth win. A sixth pole would be achieved at Silverstone, denying local hero Jensen Button a pole position at his home race. He would go on to finish second in the race behind Montoya in the McLaren. The following races were all about securing as many points as possible, and come Brazil, he had enough in hand to take the title with two races to spare. By doing so, he became the youngest driver ever to win the World Championship at just the age of 24. He rounded out his incredible season with a win in China, a race which secured Renault the Constructors' Championship and a jubilant Alonso sang We Are The Champions on the team radio as you do. Fernando Alonso and the Renault RS25 of 2005 were a match made in heaven. Formula One had a new star and Spain had a new sporting hero. Would 2006 see the same thing? Well, not without a fight from the old guard, and boy, was it a fight. 2006 saw a big change up in the regulations again. The incredible V10 engines that so many people loved were replaced by slightly less impressive V8s, though I think they still sound insane. With this change, saw an opportunity for Ferrari to catch up with Renault and McLaren after a difficult 2005, a year which saw the team secure only one race win and one pole position, both for Schumacher. Alonso won the opening round in Bahrain after a hard-fought battle with Michael Schumacher, something that would go on to become a bit of a recurring theme throughout the season. He finished second in Malaysia and one in Australia a race which saw the almost bulletproof Schumacher make a highly uncharacteristic error which resulted in him crashing on the pit straight. Then at Imola, a year after the two men engaged in the battle for the ages, they were at it again, only this time it was Michael leading Fernando to the flag. Michael secured a popular win and sent out a powerful message to his rival, announcing his intentions of becoming an eight-time world champion. Michael beat Alonso again at the European Grand Prix at the Nürburgring and went into Monaco looking to continue his charge. But after um, uh, de desperate tactics in qualifying in his attempt to take pole, something that I will cover in the inevitable Michael Schumacher episode of the podcast, Alonso took pole and won the race. At Silverstone and in Canada, Alonso's momentum continued to build with victories at both races, and it looked like the momentum had shifted for the rest of the season. He'd also won in Spain and in Monaco. But at Indianapolis, Michael won, and Alonso had a difficult race and could only finish fifth. In France, the two were so caught up in their own battle for pole that they were racing each other on their outlaps to try and get track position for their flying laps. It sounds silly, but it was kind of epic at the same time. Schumacher won the French Grand Prix and the German Grand Prix, and now both drivers were very much on even playing fields for the rest of the season. In Hungary, both Alonso and Schumacher were dropped down the order in qualifying after both receiving penalties for various infractions throughout the race weekend. Both drivers put on great performances in difficult conditions, but Alonso retired due to a loose wheel nut that came off the car after his pit stop caused him to spin and retire the car after hitting the wall. Michael battled to 8th place after 
racing a little too hard with Nick Heifelt, resulting in damage suspension. He wouldn't actually finish on the road, but due to other retirements and penalties, he would get a point. In Turkey, Michael and Alonso battled hard for second place for many, many laps, which saw Fernando come out on top with Felipe Massa in the second Ferrari, winning his first race. Monza was critical for both drivers' championships. What happened in the race? In short, Alonso retired thanks to a blown Renault engine, and Michael took an emotional win in front of the Tafosi. It was the race which saw the great Michael Schumacher announce his retirement from Formula 1 at the end of the season. But the battle was on. As they headed to China, it was all to play for. This was again another one of those epic battles between the two drivers in varying conditions, which saw Michael Schumacher secure his 91st and final win in Formula 1. Both drivers were on level points, heading into Japan, the last but one rap the last but one round of the season. In the Japanese Grand Prix, Michael led Alonso, and it looked like Michael was going to take the win, putting him one step closer to an 8th world title. But no. Michael suffered his first mechanical retirement in over five years, and Alonso cruised home to victory. He now had a 10-point lead over Michael heading into Brazil. The stage was set for the decider. If Michael won the race and Alonso failed to score, Michael would be champion because of the amount of wins he had compared to Alonso. But Fernando needed just 8-4 higher to take the title. In a race which saw a composed, calm and relaxed Alonso and a battling Michael Schumacher due to various setbacks, Fernando finished second behind Felipe Massa and secured his second world title. He became the youngest driver in history to secure back-to-back -back world titles, beating Michael Schumacher's record. With the legend now gone, and with a move to McLaren on the horizon, a deal which had been signed in the summer of 2005, may I add, the future looked bright and rosy from the man for Spain. But a certain young man from Stevenage, England, was about to, well, quite frankly, rain on Fernando Alonso's parade and turn his world upside down. By 2007, Fernando Alonso was considered to be the best driver in Formula 1, arguably in the world. And several times during that year he showed why people labelled him as such. But I would say 2007 is remembered as the year which saw the cracks start to appear in the previously steely, maybe even arrogant demeanour of F1's newest icon. You see, as I have previously mentioned on the podcast, Fernando Alonso's teammate for 2007 was F1 debutant Lewis Hamilton. Now, no one expected this kid to touch Alonso, but over the course of the season, it became clear that Lewis not only had Fernando's number, but he was actually faster than him on many occasions. Fernando won several races throughout the year and would have finished third overall, tied on points with Lewis. But there are three things I remember 2007 for when it comes to Alonso. The first of which was Indianapolis. Whilst battling with Lewis for many laps, Alonso moved violently towards the pit wall and gestured angrily towards the team. He was furious that this kid 
even had the gall to try and fight him like this. The second was hungry. I have spoken at length for what happened in the Lewis Hamilton episode, but essentially Alonso threw all of his toys out of the pram and intentionally sabotaged Lewis's attempt to get pole. He was dropped to sixth for his trouble and his championship charge, bar a win at Monza, kind of halted from there. For me, however, it grinded to a complete halt in Japan. In terrible conditions, he crashed spectacularly whilst trying to match the pace of his teammate. Yes, he was well and truly in the running until the end of the season, but for me, that was the symbolic end to Alonso's season. Raikkonen secured the title, and Alonso was left with egg on his face, hum humiliated by his new teammate, and after his relationship with Ron Dennis completely imploded for the world to see, left Woking with his tail between his legs and went back to Enstone and Flavio Briatore's Renault team. And just before I move on, I will quickly talk about Spygate. The following is a direct quote from Fernando Alonso's Wikipedia page, which sums up the messy and complicated situation in just a few sentences. As part of the espionage controversy between McLaren and Ferrari, the former were found guilty of breaching Article 151C of the FIA sporting regulations, but went unpunished due to a lack of evidence. However, the acquisition of new evidence by the FIA, a new hearing was held on the 13th of September. The new evidence consisted largely of email traffic between Alonso and test driver Petro Della Rosa. The FIA's World Motorsport Council reported the hearing, stated that Alonso and Della Rosa had obtained and used confidential Ferrari technical data and sporting strategy tech information from the senior McLaren engineer Mike Coughlin via Ferrari employee Nigel Stepney, including during test sessions. Both drivers were spared sanctions in exchange for providing evidence. That's the quote. Here's the kicker. Alonso was part of what happened here. And what happened here resulted in McLaren being fined a record 100 million US dollars and they were excluded from the 2007 Constructors Championship. As I said, messy and complicated. Fernando Alonso was destined never, ever to return to Woking. But as Murray Walker once said, anything can happen in Formula One, and it usually does. 2008 and 2009 weren't great years for Alonso, so I will skim over them as quickly as I can. 2008 saw Alonso score two wins in Singapore and Japan, the former being one of the most controversial races in Formula One history. After performing strongly all weekend in practice, where a race win was certainly not out of the question, Alonso was furious when a fuel pressure problem forced him to park the car in qualifying, resulting in him qualifying only 15th. In the race, Alonso started on low fuel and soft tyres in an attempt to make up lost ground, but pit early when it became clear that this strategy wasn't working. Then out of nowhere, his Renault teammate Nelson Piquet Jr. crashed heavily, resulting in a safety car being deployed and everyone who hadn't pitted up to that point came out of the pits behind those who already had. 
Alonso would go on to take a surprise win. And whilst nothing actually happened about it for a year, some people were a bit curious and suspicious about what had happened. A year later, Renault admitted that they fixed the Singapore Grand Prix after Piquet extracted revenge on Flavio Briatore for firing him during the 2009 season and admitted what had happened. This wasn't spying on other teams or lying to the stewards, two topics which I've covered in various episodes for this podcast. This was pure cheating of the highest order. Piquet had risked his own, the marshals and the spectators safety by crashing on purpose, let alone his competitors. It is still unclear whether it was Piquet's idea or Renault team member Pat Simmons, and both accused the other. So one of them was lying, and still is. Piquet was unpunished for his actions due to providing evidence, but for all intents and purposes, his F1 career was over. Pat Simmons was banned from FIA Motorsport for five years, but returned to the sport in 2013 with Williams. Flavio Briatore, however, was not so fortunate. After an anonymous whistleblower provided evidence that Flavio knew all about the plan, the FIA banned the flamboyant Italian team boss for life. Renault were given a two-year suspended disqualification from F1, and Alonso was allowed to keep the race win and in an interview during the 2009 Singapore Grand Prix weekend, says he still counts the win as a legitimate one in his eyes, something that befuddled many people, including me. Whilst this event, in my opinion, doesn't affect Alonso's legacy, it is certainly something that needed to be talked about. The whole thing just makes me annoyed. It's the worst case of cheating in F1 history. With two torrid years at Renault under his belt, Alonso's inevitable move to Ferrari was confirmed for 2010. Fernando's move to Ferrari had actually been in the pipeline from the moment he and McLaren mutually agreed to terminate their contract together at the end of 2007. There were rumblings around the paddock that he was going to replace Felipe Massa for 2009, but those rumours were later dismissed by Ferrari. But better late than never, as they say. He arrived in Bahrain with a lot to prove, and for the first time since 2007, he was in a car that was capable of challenging for wins, and even the World Championship. He got his Ferrari career off to the best possible start with a surprise win. Martin Brundle said, Italy has a new hero, Spain already had one, and that was clear. The Tafosi took to Fernando immediately, and he even turned me, a one-time Fernando Alonso detractor, into a fan. But a good portion of 2010 was spent on the back foot. He wouldn't win a race again until Germany, and even then, the circumstances surrounding that win are very shady, as I'll get to. In Malaysia, he retired from the race with a blown engine. In Australia, he was collected into Turn 1 by McLaren's Jensen Button, an incident that badly affected his race. In China, he jumped the start and dropped down the order. In Monaco, he crashed in free practice, preventing him from participating in the most critical qualifying session of the year. 
at Silverstone, after cutting the corner at club in his attempt to overtake Renault's Robert Kubica, he received a drive-through penalty and was, to say the least, a little bit pissed off. He even said on the team radio that he didn't want any more team radio for the rest of the race. There were surefire signs that the fiery Spaniard was flustered. But then we moved to Germany. I'll set the scene for you. Massa, starting in third, jumps both Alonso and Vettel into turn one, going from third to first. Alonso goes from second to first, and the Ferraris are out in front. The pace is good from both drivers, and they're miles in front. Alonso is on the radio fairly consistently, telling them that he was much quicker than Felipe, which might have been true, but there certainly wasn't much in it. Then, inexplicably, Rob Smedley came onto the radio to Felipe and said the following. Okay, so, Fernando is faster than you. Can you confirm you understood that message? A lap later, Felipe slowed and Fernando went through. Smedley then jumped back on the radio and said, Okay, mate, good lad, stick with him now. Sorry. And Fernando went on to an easy win and to say shit hit the fan would be an understatement. Ferrari were fined 100,000 US dollars for breaking the rules on team orders, though not long after the German Grand Prix, the team order ban was lifted. A DNF in Belgium hurt his championship chances some more before he arrived at Monza for his first Italian Grand Prix as a Ferrari driver. He took his first pole position as a Ferrari driver by the smallest of margins from Jensen Button and withstood constant pressure from the Brit for the entire race to win. He also set the fastest lap, the perfect race week end you could say. The Tafosi invaded the circuit as per tradition and they celebrated Ferrari's first home win for four years. The reception Fernando received was confirmation that they really had taken him to their hearts. At the next race, Singapore, Alonso took pole position again and drove one of the drives of his career to hold off a charging Sebastian Vettel for the win. The pressure he was under was immense, as the Red Bull was quite a bit faster than the Ferrari on the tight twisty streets of Marina Bay, but Fernando hustled his Ferrari to the flag just three tenths of a second ahead of Vettel. A true battle of attrition. Japan was all about the two Red Bulls as they cruised to an easy one too, but Fernando was the best of the rest in third. At the first ever Korean Grand Prix, Fernando needed some luck to take the win as the Red Bulls were seemingly untouchable again. But luck came his way, and boy did it come, in the form of a double retirement for Vettel and Weber, and Alonso clinched a critical win. He now led the championship by 11 points from Mark Webber. In Brazil, Alonso again was the best of the rest as the Red Bull stormed to the flag once again, securing their first Constructors' Championship and confirming that the title fight was going down to the wire in Abu Dhabi. With the possibility of a third world title and the world watching, Fernando qualified third for the race in Abu Dhabi behind Vettel and Hamilton. But his race completely fell apart after a strategic blunder by Ferrari. They tried to cover off Mark Webber in the pit stops. Essentially, they were racing the wrong Red Bull, 
and Alonso spent the remainder of the race stuck behind Petrov in the Renault. No matter what he tried, there was no way through. Helpless, realising that the World Championship was slipping away, Fernando's race engineer pleaded with his driver to get past. Use all of your talent, we know how big it is. But he couldn't, and the driver's title went to the outsider, Sebastian Vettel, who had driven perfectly from lights to flag and became F1's newest, youngest ever world champion. How did Fernando Alonso take this defeat? Well, he gestured to Petrov after the race, politely telling him to fuck off. That says it all. 2011 was not an especially great year for Fernando, not for a lack of effort, mind. It's just that the Red Bull and Sebastian Vettel as a combination were just completely dominant. There were a few highlights though, one of which was his insane start at the Spanish Grand Prix where he jumped from 5th to 1st, dicing with the Red Bulls at breakneck speeds. But the main success of his 2011 campaign came with victory at the British Grand Prix at Silverstone. This particular win means quite a bit to me as I was there in person and was very much in party mode after the race and had a bit of a headache the next day. He would finish the season in 4th place overall. 2012, however, was a totally different story. But man did Fernando have to fight for the result he got. The F2 0012 was both ugly and difficult to drive. Fernando wasn't happy with the car and that was clear after spinning out of qualifying in Australia. The Ferrari looked miles off the front runners of McLaren, Red Bull and even the Lotus. But in Malaysia, the second round of the season, Fernando shocked the world by taking an amazing victory, holding off the charging Sergio Perez of all people in the Sauber. That Ferrari had no right to be winning races so soon into the season, but Fernando managed it. Spectacular stuff. It's hard to read much more about his championship charge until the European Grand Prix on the streets of Valencia. After qualifying only 11th, Fernando drove brilliantly to climb to second place. Vettel was cruising out front. But suddenly, the Red Bull crawled to a halt and Fernando took the lead in front of a delighted home crowd. He would withstand immense pressure from Lotus's Kimi Raikkonen to take an emotional win. He climbed out of the car in front of a packed grandstand, Spanish flag in his hand, and when he finally reached the podium, he cried. What a cracking race. He would go on to finish second at Silverstone after losing the lead to Mark Webber with just a few laps to go. He would make amends in Spain with his third win of the year. With Sebastian Vettel and Lewis Hamilton not having the best run of things and with Alonso finishing consistently well, it looked like a matter of time before he would go on to take the title. Then Spa happened. Alonso's race was over in one corner after a spectacular multi-car shunt in which he avoided serious injury by a matter of inches as Roman, Grosjean's, Roman Grosjean's Lotus crashed over the top of the Ferrari. Vettel hustled his Red Bull to second place after a poor qualifying session. Whilst not ideal, it didn't hurt his title chances as much as you'd think. Leave that to Japan. Much like at Spa, Alonso's Japanese Grand Prix was over in one corner and that really did harm him. 
You can argue that without those two retirements, Alonso could have taken the title easily. As the F1 circus headed to Brazil, it was Alonso versus Vettel, with Hamilton dropping out of the running for the title with a few races to go. Red Bull had come on seriously strong come the end of the season, and Vettel had clawed his way back into the contention. One of these two men was going to become a three-time world champion. After light out in Brazil, Fernando Alonso looked almost certain to take the title after Vettel was collected on the opening lap and sent to the back of the field with a damaged car. Alonso would go on to make a crazy double overtake on Webber and Massa to put himself firmly in the right place to take the title. But Vettel fought his way through the field to finish sixth and he took the title by just three points. The Spaniard had done absolutely everything he could. He had a much inferior car compared to his rivals and came so close. The image of him stood in Park Ferme just after the race, a look of pure despair in his eyes. He's in a way gone to define his career. But sometimes you don't have to win a world championship to be a winner. And for my money, Alonso won over many, many people with his performances throughout the 2012 season. He gained so much respect, and sometimes that is worth much more than numbers on a piece of paper. Now the rest of Fernando Alonso's story, up to this point at least, is a bit depressing, and I really want to end this episode on a positive note, so I will quickly glance over 2013 to present day. Two wins in 2013, in China and in Spain, and only two podiums in 2014 were the last successes of his time with Ferrari. By that time, he had become disgruntled with the team, and he cut his losses and left Marinello. But where would he end up? Well. Against all odds, Fernando Alonso returned to McLaren. Yep, McLaren. What a strange world we live in. But unfortunately this time, at McLaren, it has been spent mostly on the sidelines. Honda have been horrendous, and multiple failures have on occasion prevented Fernando from even starting races. His best result since his new partnership with McLaren and Honda has been fifth in Hungary in 2015 and in Monaco and in the US in 2016. 2017 so far has been more than horrendous. But by the time you hear this, he might have had a major change in fortunes. He hasn't scored a single point and at the time of recording, we're a few days away from the European Grand Prix weekend in Baku. But the highlight of Fernando Alonso's 2017 season, and I am happy to say I think it will be the highlight for the rest of this season, was this. It wasn't even an F1. Incredibly, Fernando announced that he was going to miss the Monaco Grand Prix to take part in the Indianapolis 500. He immediately impressed in practice and qualified fifth. He even led the race for a period of time and was actually looking good to win the whole thing. But guess what? The Honda engine in the back of his car let him down 
with just 21 laps to go of the 200 lap 500 mile race. I suspect though that he'll be back at Indy in the future, maybe sooner than we think. At this point, Alonso has 32 F1 wins and with the ways going as they are, it's hard to imagine that he's going to add to that tally, but you never know. Maybe he's due one or two IndyCar wins, but let's see what happens. Now, much like I did for the Lewis Hamilton episode, I asked my friends on Facebook for their thoughts on Fernando Alonso. I didn't give you much time to respond, so my apologies, but there was one particular response which I feel pretty much sums up my feelings on Alonso as well. It comes from Jack Holden Rhodes. Used to think he was a bit of a dick, but watched him give everything into a machine that isn't fit for anyone has given me more respect for him as a driver and have made me realise how talented that Spaniard is. Then seeing him absolutely smash Indy, he's one of, if not the best driver on the grid. And if I was asked to sum up my personal thoughts on Fernando Alonso, I would say something similar. I really did not like him in the mid-2000s. I thought he was incredibly arrogant. I thought he was a crybaby. He was F1's villain for a long time. But since joining Ferrari in 2010, I finally understood just how good he was. And whilst he didn't win a world championship with Ferrari, I look back on my time watching Alonso at Ferrari fondly. His victories provided me with lots of great memories and since joining McLaren, he's provided us all with some amazing quotes on the team radio, expressing his frustration with the horribly underpowered and unreliable Honda power unit. But what makes me sad is the fact that I think his time in F1 is coming to an end. Not because he's not quick enough. If anything, I think he's the best all-round driver on the grid. But unless he's able to get a seat in a top team for 2018, I think he'll leave willingly to race somewhere else. Probably IndyCar. A talent as great as Alonso's shouldn't be running around at the back of the field like he is at the moment. It genuinely makes me sad. Fernando Alonso is a once-in-a-generation type of driver. He is just an amazing all-rounder. He's lightning quick, as ruthless as they come, incredibly determined, and universally respected. At the height of his career, watching him hustle a Formula One car was a joy to behold, and for my money, he is an artist behind the wheel. When he does decide to call it a day, I will miss him immensely. But for now, let's enjoy him behind the wheel. I would argue, he is one of the absolute best drivers of all time. For me, if you were to ask me to list who I think are the 10 best drivers in history, he might just make the top five. A talent that has continued to grow and grow, and there aren't many people who have had or will have a talent bigger than his. This episode of F1 Everything was written and created by me, Rob. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. I know it's been a while since my last episode. Life has just been a bit crazy, but I'm back. I'll be up. I'll be uploading a lot more consistently. Don't worry. 
Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. SoundCloud? SoundCloud. I do that every time. And to leave a rating and or a review, it really helps me out, guys. Let's get the steamroller going for this podcast. You'll also find the show on Twitter at F1 double underscore everything. Make sure to go and give it a follow. I'm Rob Manifield, and I'll see you around the next corner.